Welcome to the APM podcast. APM is the chartered body for the project profession. Hi, I'm Emma DeVita, the editor of Project, APM's quarterly journal. In this, our Project Innovators season of podcasts, I'm speaking to the project professionals who are leading projects in an innovative way at a time when many of us are hoping the world of work and projects can be reset in a better way for a post-COVID world. This means capitalising on the best minds. Cognitive diversity is explained by Matthew Saeed in his book, Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking, Pays. Who better to talk about how to do diversity and inclusion right than Jenny McLaughlin, the project manager at Heathrow Airport, who's also its disability network lead. Jenny is innovative in the way she threads inclusivity through every part of the projects she manages. She says project managers are the best people to deliver change with true support from Heathrow's executive team, she's showing what diversity means for projects when you take it beyond the cursory tick box exercise. By asking difficult questions every step of the way, she and her team are creating a sense of belonging for everyone on a project. How is she doing it? And what lessons can she share with other project managers who are serious about making inclusion real? I spoke to Jenny in early December, and we pick up the conversation when she tells me a bit about her work. Hi Jenny, thanks again for joining us. Just a couple of weeks to go in 2020. What a year that's been for everyone. I think it might be useful to start with you telling us a bit about your role at Heathrow, the projects you're working on and how project management fits within the business. So at the moment, the projects that we are working on are mainly around the effects of the pandemic. So it's our Safe to Fly programme. So it's things like installing the testing centres that are now live in Terminal 2 and Terminal 5. It was consolidation of the terminals, so moving what was four operational terminals into two. So moving the airlines that were in Terminal 4 and Terminal 3 into Terminal 2 and Terminal 5, which is a massive, you you know, the complexity to do with that was beyond belief. But we managed to do it and keep our stakeholders, our airlines happy. So a lot of our projects at the moment are around that. The real reason I grabbed you to speak to us today was around diversity and inclusion and how to do it. How do you do it? It's it's nice to have. It's nice to talk about. But how, how do you actually get it done in real life? And why does it work? That's what I want to pick your brains about right now. I think it would be useful to ask you, where does your interest in diversity and inclusion stem from? And how is Heathrow getting it right for you? I've always... I've always grown up believing that I think my mother always said it as you should, you know, do do as you should be done by, which is not necessarily the right phrase right now. But it, it was an understanding that, you know, in order to live in this world together, we have to have a way of, of living with each other that is respectful of other people's ways of life. And I very much grew up as that being part of one of my core values. But building on that, sort of about two, three years ago now, my son was diagnosed with ADHD. I was diagnosed with dyslexia since I was in primary school. So I've always known that I'm different. I'm different from other people and always felt a bit different. But my son being diagnosed and learning about what his challenges are going to be and what his strengths are, I very much had a passion to start to change the world for him so that he would not feel like he doesn't fit in. He wouldn't have the kind of barriers and challenges that maybe I had because as I was learning more about what ADHD is and how it affects someone, I realised I also have ADHD and I, I was then diagnosed myself. And looking back over my life and thinking how many times had I felt alone or felt 
um, like I didn't belong purely because I didn't understand how my brain worked and how that was both a challenge and also you know, an amazing gift. So that's where basically my passion comes from is, is I don't want anybody to feel like they don't belong in this world. I want everybody to have the same opportunities. And sometimes in order to gain that equality, we have to ensure that we're not designing in the barriers into our infrastructure, into our workplaces, into our technology. And so I started to learn more and more about that. And I think what Heathrow does well is it understands that diversity and inclusion is more than just a recruitment practice. It's more than just ticking a box saying, oh, look, how many people of this sort we have? And oh, look, how many and we have a network and, you know, all of those things that you generally see when people are saying the right things about diversity and inclusion. What I feel Heathrow does is it takes that to heart and says, no, what we want to do is actually be inclusive. We want to ensure that our colleagues feel that they belong and we want to make sure that our practices and our policies and our, our infrastructure has equal access to everybody has same equal access to and we need to change the way we're doing things in order to ensure that happens so we'll talk about the barriers later but i think it'd be good to talk about how to get it right so i wonder if you could give us a couple of examples of how diversity and inclusion is incorporated and embedded into projects in the real world so how do you actually go from talking about these things to taking action because that's what it sounds like he throws getting right in everyday terms how on earth do you do you do this in a meaningful way I think the first part of it is an awakening and it is it's more than awareness it's an awakening to understand that a lot of the decisions we make within project manage we do with a certain amount of unconscious bias and that's in the decisions and we don't necessarily check our decisions against the demographic of the stakeholders that we are working for or the demographic of the stakeholders we could be working for if we hadn't have introduced the barrier. So a couple of examples would be we're, one of the projects we were looking at was around the fire doors. And so, you know, you instinctively you go to a fire door supplier and you talk to the fire door supplier and they say, this is the amazing fire door we now have to put into that space and we're like okay you we trust you you have the right kite marks we have the right certification but the question we don't ask is who have you tested it on so when a fire door is needed to be opened who have you checked can open it and what nuances are there that would actually lead that that fire door wouldn't be safe for a certain demographic because we've not considered them in the design so it's those kind of practical things it's about really at the point when you are saying this is being built for someone or this is being designed for someone. Who is that someone you have in mind and checking your assumptions at that point? So that's what we've started to introduce to every project. And we have a pilot project running at the moment, which we're hoping to be able to really share the outcomes and the tangibles that we find from doing this project and really looking at every element and every decision we run across the way and being able to come back with some real good things that other project managers and other clients and other organisations could really start to use more than a checklist, but just as a help for that awakening. So it's really about incorporating these checks within the processes that exist already. Exactly. It's using this framework and the structure we already have, but at certain points asking yourself the difficult question, which is, have I excluded anybody? Is there anybody in my decision making that I've excluded? So take a technology project and you're building some software that's going to be shared with all your colleagues that are sat at home. When you've designed it and when you've created it, have you designed some of your colleagues may be partial to hearing? Or have you designed it in such a way that you understand that some of your colleagues may be dyslexic? 
or have you designed it in a way that uh, understands that some of your um, colleagues may be partially sighted so actually they need zoom tools on it it's about not just seeing this is an amazing project because it works for me and it works for the people in my team. It's about making a, a, a project and taking it further than that. So some of the examples could be particularly around belonging and about safety. So this is one of the things that I'm also introducing within our safety governance within projects is understanding that when we're saying that we have designed something through construction design management 2015 regulations, when we say we've designed it so that it is safe for people to build, have we ensured that it's safe for everybody? And have we ensured that by making sure that there is no discrimination on sites, say, because of somebody's cultural background or their religious background or because of the person they love or because of any element to do with their identity? And identity goes much further than the core things we tend to talk about. It can be social upbringing. It could be whether or not your parents went to university or not. It can be so many things and if we don't create teams and create you know, construction sites in our world that are truly open to everybody feeling they can talk about every part of their identity, then actually we create barriers to more than just the conversations around the project and diversity and inclusion. We create barriers around safety, around well-being, because anybody knows a hiding part of your identity is going to give you at some point mental health challenges. And, and if people don't feel they can talk up, say age is a good example. So one of the examples what I think I talked about before was around if you have a, an apprentice on site and you have an experienced project manager or site manager on site, if that culture that you're working with is in doesn't give the apprentice the psychological safety that they can speak up about anything to do with that project, then there will be issues that happen with that project, no doubt, because they have a, they have a vision and a site that is as valid as an experienced person. And if you don't create that culture of diversity and inclusion, you won't get the value of their vision of the world. So is it two things, really? You need to create the psychological safety on projects for everyone to have a voice. And is it also about creating a multitude of different voices on projects? Now, there are people out there who might think we've got to get X number of BAME people on our project, X number of women, X number of people on disabilities. I think it's probably more far more sophisticated than that. But how much is it about getting different people together, that kind of cognitive diversity on projects? And how do you see that in a kind of pragmatic way when you're putting together project teams or different projects? How do you do that in practice? So I think there's a journey that we need to go on. And to start that journey, we need to be aware that the reason why we don't have diversity within some project teams is because there's barriers to people actually getting to be in that team. Tell us about those barriers. They could be anything from from recruitment. They could be gaining a accreditation within a recognised body, for example. So I know that some recognised bodies are very good at ensuring that that no matter what your background is or your challenges, your difficulty, they will support you. So you have equal access to getting um, that accreditation. So, so for some of the team, for example, within the engineering fields, you could have had barriers because actually from your social economic background, from where you came from, that you had no opportunity to go to that kind of university, etc. So there are certain things like that where we need to be we, we need to be cognizant at the moment. We can't just say, right, we want this group of people, so 
um, we need to go get them. We need to ensure we've removed the barriers so that kind of range of individuals has the ability to become our pipeline. So that's the first job is to look at where are the barriers like that and and how do we remove them and one of them as i said is around design so i look when i go onto sites the sites aren't designed for a five foot woman with size five feet they're just not you know and i i walk around site and i don't always feel comfortable that's not necessarily the culture on the site but it's because you know the rebar um has a sighting certain gap between it or it's because actually the ladder the rungs that i've got to get up to get onto the next you know are, are certain so it's not designed for me to be a project manager and that kind of barrier can make you feel like you don't belong there and maybe you're not the right fit and then you can end up having to try and compensate for that which is just it's just ridiculous so i think we have to absolutely understand and start to open our eyes to all of the range of different barriers to to a more diverse group being within our teams then we have to create the psychological safety so that when we do have them, they feel that they are part of it and they belong. And by no means, any unconscious barrier that is still remaining is there to tell them that they don't belong there. It's just there because we haven't seen it yet. And in them being safe enough to open our eyes to those other nuances that we haven't quite got to yet, we will then come to the third level, which is actually creating a very diverse team. And that diverse team is going to have far better insights into how to um, progress and, and and make and change the world into be a more diverse and inclusive place. You know, you only need to read books like Matthew Side's Rebel Ideas to see the power of that cognitive difference within individuals. You know, examples of where it's gone horribly wrong and examples where it's definitely been of value. And, and, and Silicon Valley is one of those that he draws out whereby it was the individuals all meeting over lunch and discussing the problems that they had in each of their very different fields that they were looking at. And it was those conversations where, you know, they came out of their silos and they, they swapped ideas and suddenly new things were born and new innovations were born. So one of the major benefits of inclusive projects is that you don't fall into the trap of group think, that you have better solutions, more creative solutions, perhaps. Yes, no, 100%. I think any project manager who... I would say is is adding value to a business understands that they're not always going to have the right solution to hand and they need to see things from all of their team's perspectives. I've had a number of examples whereby I've been quite tunnel visioned about how to get something done and it's not till somebody else who has a better expertise than I have in that field has said well have you thought about this and I've suddenly thought no you know what I need to switch I need to tilt I need to pivot here and, and and incorporate what they've just told me isn't that one of the barriers because that takes more effort and some idea of humility as a leader on a project because um it's far more comfortable to stick with the people you've worked with before um and who might be like you look like you um get you rather than actively finding people who might disagree with you and make life a bit harder but really the demands of the project if you want the better project you want those different views don't you it doesn't pay for the project to put your own comfort first I guess I think that could be a big barrier I think you've hit the nail on the head there project managers are very resilient people because they always encounter change through their project and they're delivering change it is a natural human response to want to do that with a certain safety blanket and and having people around you that you feel more comfortable with is the easy way to do that and my challenge would be that an initial discomfort in creating a new team 
and really connecting with them and really you know finding out what they're all about and creating that almost family ethos just pays dividends and you know sometimes the most unlikely people that I've worked with that I may have you know slightly grimaced when I heard their name and they were going to be part of the team I've actually been the added the greatest value once I've you know removed that initial you know knee-jerk response and actually got to know what they're about and why they do the things they do and actually come to accept that it's my own intolerance in some ways that needs to be checked not their way of being if that makes sense. So it pays to get to know the people you're working with so you better understand where they're coming from. Absolutely in initially creating a team in in, in creating collaboration which I I believe is the best way to run a team is, is a collaborative way forward I think you start to respect and then you can start you you can start to respect each other and understand the value each of you bring and where somebody may have a challenge you know my my example is always spreadsheets spreadsheets are my nemesis I just you know (laughs) just really are but then there's always somebody in the team who's willing to you know support me and is that's just what they do and then and they and, and their nemesis is standing up and talking about the story that goes behind the numbers to bring it to life for an exec member or whatever but that's where I step in and I'm the person that's really good at doing that so you know by having each other's back so to speak by coming together as a team and delivering and seeing that vision and delivering it as a team that you can really benefit an organization I guess it allows everyone to play to their strengths because um, you've found out what their strengths are and what they want how they want to contribute to the project you can enable that and not make them fear the areas that they need support on because they will be able to show their and deliver their strengths and help some one person and somebody else will be able to help them on the on the challenges they have. And I think one of the other benefits of cognitive diversity, however you view that or measure it, is that it can help de-risk a project. I think so. I think what we have come to I guess see as as normal in this world isn't true. I think we are all unique individuals. We all are built up of of our experiences and our biological makeup. And what cognitive difference or or neurodiversity means is that it's an understanding that everybody's brain works differently. It's like a blueprint. It's like a fingerprint. Sorry. You know, everybody is slightly different. And in understanding that, we can see the value in working in a different way to enable that benefit to be delivered. I get the impression that you feel very supported at the organisation you work for. How important is it to have strong leadership on diversity and inclusion right from the top of an organisation or from key stakeholders? I think it's critical. I think if you don't have that senior leadership buy-in, there are so many doors that remain stubbornly shut to you. I think in having exec and senior leadership buy-in and in them being willing to share their stories and them being willing to be vulnerable and talk about their differences is so much value Um, and it just means that when you start to talk about diversity and inclusion being more than a recruitment practice it is absolutely something that needs to filter all the way through every aspect of the business and every aspect of a project management you know you've got that backing you've got that hand at your back to support you uh, on delivering the changes you want to. I think 2020 is a tough year for issues like DNI. Um, people, some 
companies or leaders seeing it as a nice to have when your company's up against the wall, as many are this year, that it's a nice to have. There's a danger that that it could slip from the corporate agenda. Why is that a mistake? Why do companies and projects need to innovate in this way now more than ever? I guess there's, there's, a, there's a couple of answers to this. One is that even if you just take a movement like Purple Space or Purple Tuesdays, you know, around the disability agenda. Can you explain that to us in case people haven't heard of that? So there is there is a movement called Purple Space and they do something called Purple Tuesday and they did light up purple for the 3rd of um, December International Disability Day. And what they're trying to promote is the fact that by not thinking about not including the requirements and the accessibility needs of those with disabilities, you are actually denying yourself something like three point something billion pounds a year that is actually the spending power of these people who can't spend that money because we've created a barrier to them either getting into the shop or the restaurant or the hotel or flying or using a train. You know any of the services or in some aspects you know as I was talking earlier about digital aspects and you know even shopping online becomes a challenge to them so it's about it was about highlighting that so I think those companies who don't see that diversity inclusion is just something they need to do because if they don't do it they're creating a barrier to somebody either using their service or buying their product or or, or utilising their infrastructure, whatever it is that they're trying to trying to do or trying to, to their business is about, there is a group of people who won't be doing that because they've not thought about them. So I think it's just it's just ridiculous not <laughs> not to build for humans. I can't. I, it just doesn't. It just it just doesn't compute in my head why you wouldn't do it. And I think the second thing around um, internally for your colleagues, etc. I think that your your business will never thrive. I think it's something, isn't it, that Richard Branson says, if you look after your colleagues, they will look after your um, customers. And I do truly believe that's true. I think that you look at the companies through this pandemic and, and, and going into Brexit that are still moving forward, the ones that are, you know, really hopefully going to, to survive this and thrive the other side are those that are looking after their colleagues, those that are, their colleagues will do whatever needs to be done because they are bought into they are engaged with that company ethos and they feel that as like a family link and you won't get that if you don't create that sense of belonging and you can only create that sense of belonging if you understand that each individual in that company is different and you need to respect that I think it's something I heard quoted the other day that is um, you know the nature of a culture uh, within a company by what is allowed to be said and what is allowed to be done what if you don't react to those comments be it banter or you don't react to when you become aware of a barrier in some way to someone being able to contribute in the same way if you don't react to that and you do nothing that basically sums up your culture and I think it's true I think those companies who think that that diversity and inclusion is a nice to have a, a tick box exercise completely doesn't understand the privilege of those individuals that are in the position to say that they don't understand that they are denying somebody else's humanity and somebody else's dignity by not recognizing their privilege and don't we need as many minds to help us get through this pandemic uh, as we can possibly have we need to cast that talent net further than ever because 
we're living through something where all the rule, you know, the rule books have been chucked out the window and we need everyone coming up with the most creative solutions as fast as we possibly can to get through this. And I think that taps in very much in, in, into what you're saying and about the companies that are surviving and will thrive because they're able to see that. Absolutely. You look at the majority of innovation, anything from the typewriter through to Velcro, through to all of these things have come from individuals who think differently, who see a problem or a challenge and are able to see beyond the fact that or the belief that it can't be done, but actually find a way to do it. You know, the typewriter came from a guy whose wife was was going blind and wanted to write letters. So he designed something, you know, anybody else would have sat there and said, well, you can't, you, you can't see, you can't write, therefore you can't write letters, full stop. He didn't see it like that. He saw, well, there must be a way that I can help her to be able to do the things she wants to do. And here it is. It's a typewriter. I did not know that. I didn't know that's how where that came from. And there's so much innovation. You know, you speak. So speaking to your laptop and it, it writing again has come from an accessibility feature. So much of innovation that we use every day has come from somebody refusing to say, I'm not going to allow that person not to be able to take part in this society. I'm not going to say that they are less than because they have a difference to me. I'm going to ensure that I find a way that they can still belong and still take part. And if we all as project managers did that, how much amazingness would we have in this world right now? Would you agree that project manager managers are in a powerful position to do something about diversity and inclusion because they often sit outside the corporate hierarchy? I think they have the most powerful position of anybody in the organisation to make a difference because they can facilitate that conversation at the start because as you say they're not embedded into how it's always been done they're not indoctrinated into the business as usual they sit outside that and are essentially deliverers of change that's what they do so if every project manager from today said I'm going to check my assumptions I'm going to ensure that the demographic I am have in mind when I'm delivering this benefits of this project fits a much more diverse group I think the world would would change a hundredfold in the next five years wow I can I pin you down now because there must be do's and don'ts that you've picked up through working on projects when it comes to diversity and inclusion could you give, give any advice tips hacks about how to do things right and which mistakes to avoid I said the biggest mistake that anybody makes is trying to retrofit changes after the initial I think anybody would say that but it is it's going oh I have this amazing design and I'm going to do this amazing thing and then halfway through the project going oh I just forgot something and then trying to retrofit it it's just too painful and too difficult so I would say my first suggestion or hack is do it at the beginning, do it at the inception before you've even, you know, started to really pin down what it is you want to do. Double check your assumptions, check the market, check what's out there, what's Horizon Scan. Talk to as many organisations and there are loads of organisations out there. Any of the charities, groups out there will support you on all of the areas you don't know and all of the assumptions you've made. And any and, and then when you're going through it at the point where you're not quite set, getting them to test it. 100% getting as many demog- as big a demographic as you can to test it before you've set because that will give you the insights that you you need in order to ensure you're not having to retrofit. So really you're saying let's think about diversity and inclusion right from the 
kickoff of the project or even before that when you're thinking about how the project will be set up? While we're awakening to the fact that we don't currently do this, yes, absolutely, it should be the first thing we do. I think hopefully within years and it becomes just part of what we teach people from, you know, from primary school through to university, you know, any engineering degree or technology degree, it's just embedded in everything they teach us is right. Check your concepts, check who you're doing it for, make sure, you know, until that's just way of life. Yeah, absolutely. At the outset, we need to do that as project managers. Are there any resources you'd recommend any, um, websites or uh, organizations or blogs wow or... probably hundreds <laughs> <laughs> yeah I will I'm more than happy to send you a list but um definitely if you are designing or, or in that space other than the rebel ideas I've already mentioned mismatch by Kat Holmes um, is an amazing book which goes through how design assumptions can creep in uh, and how to think of inclusion differently what about when it comes to recruiting people onto a project or onto a team? Any do's and don'ts? Don't assume that the person that is applying knows what they need. I think that's the biggest assumption sometimes we have in recruitment or recruiting to teams is that we say, oh, we, we absolutely want you to come and apply and we will ensure that we, we meet your requirements. But sometimes people don't know what their requirements are. So... I would say that it's useful to have a bit of a, would this, this or this help? So, you know, have a, a menu board almost. of So we can do it in this number of ways. Which one would you prefer? Because the person will know what they felt most comfortable with in terms of, you know, often I will say to somebody, do you want to respond to me by email? Would you like a telephone call? Is it better face to face? I'm more than happy to meet you in a, in a location that you prefer, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about helping someone to to realise and be able to communicate what their comfort zone is and meeting it them at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. That's really valuable advice. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to get your kind of tips on, which is psychological safety and trying to create that and that sense of belonging on a project team. Have you found anything that works particularly well that might be useful to listeners? The biggest thing to do is to share your own vulnerability. I think as a project manager, I'm more than happy to hand, put my hand up and say, I got that wrong or I'm sorry. Or, you know, this is going on for me today, guys. I just need a break. Can I just take five minutes? Role modelling it as a project manager gives so much value to the others to know that they can also. There's also a guy I've seen recently who talks about the power of language and quite often as what we do as project managers is we we ask close questions I've done all of these things that's okay isn't it now anybody in the room is going to go aha yep because you've asked me and I don't want to disagree and I don't want to be the one person in my room sticking my hand up and going no just in case I embarrass myself so it's about the the ability to open ask open questions. So you could say something he suggests saying something like on a scale to one to five, how confident you are that this action will will reach the benefit that we need. And people are more likely to go, I'm about a three or a four rather than saying, no, I'm not I don't not happy or and then you can pick it up and go, OK, so I've got a lot of threes in the room. So I've not hit this right. We need to relook at it or Everybody's saying five, so I'm pretty confident that we're, we're, we're okay. It's about the nuances of ensuring that you're allowing people 
to respond and they trust that when they do respond they're not going to get shot down or embarrassed and actually finding that way with language that creates that psychological safe space. That's fantastic. Um, Thinking beyond the innovations to do with diversity inclusion, is there anything else on your radar that is intriguing you that you feel project managers, your peers, should be thinking about too? I think at the moment what I'm finding interesting is what somebody described as a barometer So within project management, we're used to being with our team and therefore picking up on nuances of body language or, you know, um, slight conversations at the water cooler or any of those things to really get a sense of how the team's going and that kind of gut instinct you build on whether you need to kind of dive into something, whether you need to look at the detail of something because you, you get the sense that that things aren't, aren't maybe going to plan or, or there's um, something that you should focus on. It's hard to do that when you're working from home. And I think that removal of that barometer means that we probably either overcompensating by probably having too many meetings or doing, you know, having too much time, you know, spent at our laptops or whatever else, and maybe not time enough time sort of with our head above the parapet and, and looking out and vision scanning or, or all of those other things that we need to kind of do just to be happy and be able to move on to the next thing. What's the remedy? What's the remedy for that? I don't know. And that's what I'm interested to find out, because I think it's only really coming to light towards the end of this year as people are kind of closing down on the year. And, and it's always that point where you're kind of maybe not intentionally, but wrapping things up a little bit so you can, you know, kick back hopefully over, over the Christmas New Year and, and have some time to reflect and um, rejuvenate. And I think people are starting to realise that the things that they probably missed or the things that they are hoping will be different next year as, as hopefully the vaccine and, and everything else changes our world again is to regain that connection. And I'm interested to see how much of that happens how many people return to the office how many people start to have those sessions I mean I am just useless a team's meeting when people are trying to brainstorm to me is just like the the world's end it just doesn't doesn't give you the it doesn't give you the same value that same energy and spark that you do with a whole load of post-it notes and a, and a blank wall or a brown piece of paper so I'm interested to see how that changes where we go from here because there's definitely value from working from home definitely value in the terms it's quite of people you can talk to and meet just by not having to meet them in an office or you know the the amount of people you can have in one conversation or in delivering a message is much easier you know I'd have never been able to do briefings with all the different areas of the business in one go I'd have had to spend about two weeks going around to each of their team meetings to meet them all individually that you know so I'm not saying that there are not massive benefits but I think a next step is to regain that barometer regain that energy and that sense of belonging by being in the same space again Jenny what a brilliant way to end this podcast I want to thank you again for finding the time to speak to us at a really busy time of year just as you're wrapping everything up want to wish you a good holiday and some well-earned rest, I imagine, for you and your colleagues. So thank you again for speaking to us today. Thanks again to Jenny for joining us and to you for listening to this third episode of APM's Project Innovators series. Don't forget to look out for more episodes in this series or to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and more. This podcast has been brought to you by APM, 
the Chartered Body for the Project Profession. For more information on APM, visit apm.org.uk.